Hi, and welcome to Good Nature, a show about good people doing good things despite challenges like chronic illness, disability, and more. My name's Tony, and I'm a digital media professional dealing with a chronic muscle disease called LGMD2I. Today, my guest is James Kassar. James has written for a handful of major music publications, managed independent artists, and recently started a not-for-profit record company and mail order called Moon Physics with some friends. James has cerebral palsy and has long been on the front lines as an advocate for a more accessible, both literally and figuratively, DIY and live music experience. Here's James. Well, James, let's start out then. How are you feeling today? Not bad. Um, I have a vaccine appointment tomorrow, so I'm kind of just getting ready for that. Um, But yeah, I've been okay. I've been feeling kind of just worn out for the past couple of weeks. But uh, yeah, today was fine. I mean, like I got my taxes filed, so that was nice. cool. Yeah, I'm doing okay. How are you? How are things going? Well, I was going to ask, is this vaccine one or two? Oh, it's vaccine one. I think so. I was scheduled for the J&J and then the news story came out and right. then they were pulling J&J and replacing it with Pfizer or Moderna, but I haven't gotten that email yet. So it Either will be dose one of J and J or dose one of something else. So, I wish you the best. I'm on. I'm 72 hours out from dose number two of Pfizer at this point. That's, that's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, number one was totally fine. Like I felt no side effects. I think just like drink a lot of water and cool. you know get electrolytes as they say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I felt fine with that. With the second, it's very like, you know that feeling when you are about to get the flu? Yeah. (laughs) It's been like that for about two days, but it's never crossed over, which I'm thankful for. But I was a little concerned because I am a little more fatigued than usual. I don't know that I can bring that like drive time, shock jock, radio DJ energy I like to bring to the listeners of this podcast. So hopefully, you know, since you're you're pre-vax, you might have to... Uh, take I will pick care. up the slack, I guess. Yeah, I knew you absolutely. would. But on a totally different note, before we jump right into it, um, you are from Philly, which I have a deep admiration for the city of Philadelphia right now because it, it feels like there's so much good music and so much funny uh, music Twitter people, yourself included, <laughs> are in Philly right now. Yeah. But I got to ask, I don't believe you're, you're a native to the tri-state area. Are you... You're from the Midwest originally, correct? Yes. So um, my kind of trajectory geographically was like I was born in Denver and spent like, you know, I learned to walk when I was four. So that's kind of the end of my life in Denver. And then I moved to uh, like a suburb of Detroit. And by suburb, I mean, it was like an hour away. But like people in the area would say they're from Detroit. Right. But they're not, you know, kind of that. And then I lived there until I was about 16. And then I moved to Virginia where I went to college. And that's where I kind of fell in love with, you know, DIY and house shows and stuff. But at the same time, I was kind of growing really magnetized to Philly for the music reason that you so mentioned. And so in college, I would travel up and I was managing a band at the time called The Obsessives. And... So I was always in Philly and it was always my kind of aspirational goal to end up here. And so in 2017, I moved. So I've been here for close to four years. And you know what? I really miss shows. 
I really miss going to Union Transfer. I'm really bummed the spirit of the Beehive. I can't see their album release stuff. We're relegated to live streams. In time, we'll get back to all that. But I think in quarantine, I've really like found Philly to be more home-y than it has been. Just because like I feel like all the people that I've had friendships with have like really like extended support to me in this weird time. So it's like yeah. really like solidified how I feel about being here finally. Um, so yeah, I'm not I'm not from here originally, but I feel like I am here now. That's great to hear. I, I like to ask about regional food. Um, that's very recent. I think the last guest I had on here, we talked about, she was from the Akron, Ohio area like myself, and we talked about a very specific regional burger chain. But I wonder, since you, I guess, spent so much of your life in the Midwest, I assume you've you've done some touring as well, which we'll talk about. But do you have a, do you have a strong feeling either way about Sheets versus Wawa? So Sheets is actually also in Virginia, as is Wawa. So we kind right. of get... So, like, I guess the Michigan gas station fare at the time was, like, Speedway. Yeah. Which is still a thing. It's not, I guess that's more, like, Breezewood, Pennsylvania abouts. But, like, I love oh, Sheets. I love Breezewood Sheets. Breezewood has everything. Breezewood does. But I think <laughs> that's the point of Breezewood, isn't it? It's, like, yeah. it's a fake, like, uh, turnpike town. But anyway, so... I love Sheets. I think when I started, when I discovered Sheets, it was like when I moved to Virginia, but they have great, like, you know, veg options, especially yes. for like so many people that have like come through Virginia and they, you know, are touring and need quick food. I mean, Wawa like recently added like burgers and stuff. They're trying to plus up their dinner options because sometimes you don't want to hoagie at 8 p.m., but. I really wish that Philly doesn't need six Wawa on every corner. I mean, right. like in in like a three block radius of where I live, but I live near City Hall, so like take that how you will. But like in that brief, you know, interchange of three blocks, there's like three Wawas, and it's like you can't experiment with the sheets on the city limits. Like you're that tied to it like yeah i'm saying this as like a transplant and i'm sorry like i know it's gonna hurt somebody's feelings and ruffle someone's feathers and i'm sorry but like sheets is so good and the fact that i have to drive or like have literally have someone drive two sheets is a travesty and it's a tragedy <laughs> i 100 agree sheets always been superior i have a lot more experience with sheets than I do Wawa. I appreciate both, but I have this master plan in my head of how to bring sheets to Los Angeles. And I really hope to see that to fruition at some point in the next decade or so. Um, so shifting gears, you deal with, obviously you're on the show because you do some very cool things. You also deal with like myself, a chronic condition, you have cerebral palsy. Can you kind of talk about as someone who's been pretty, you know, outspoken and, and put yourself out there concerning it, what are some of the like day-to-day -day things you do? Because you've been dealing with this your whole life to some degree. So what kind of like daily rhythm have you established that makes things a little bit easier to deal with that condition? So for those at home, maybe not familiar with cerebral palsy, it is a 
condition that affects one in every 2,500 births. And normally it happens in premature babies. And normally also it involves a brain hemorrhage of some kind. So when I was born three days afterward, I suffered a hemorrhage on both sides of my brain. And it my um, diagnosis of CP varies from others because it varies on the amount of muscle spasticity and the regions of your bodies that are affected. So my specific CP is spastic hemiplegia. So to break that down, hemi is half. So the right side of my body is generally weaker than my left. So I'm left-handed. I do things predominantly with my left hand. So to kind of tie that into my routine like it takes <laughs> probably like seven to ten minutes for me to get dressed in the morning just because like a lot of my faculties I, I think like the majority of the things that I do or like hold on to for support or try to just like get through like button right. clothes or things like that it's all done basically with my left side of my body. And yeah, my parents are always kind of like, you're neglecting your right side, but it's like my right side is weaker to a point where like you can't really strengthen it. And, you know, I've been in physical therapy programs for a lot of my life and I've done pretty much every experimental thing you could shake a stick at, but it's like, I kind of know how my body works. And like, unfortunately for the caregivers in my life that I've had, it's just kind of like, you know, like sometimes the way that I choose to live my life as an adult clashes with the way that I was like raised to use it. So like I've tried to adapt to just like, what is oh, the yeah. most comfortable thing for me? I think with my routine, now that I don't have to commute for context, I used to, before the pandemic, literally I got a new job on April 8th of last year, which is like, right at the beginning of the pandemic. So I was interviewing yeah. as things were going crazy. So I used to commute to New Jersey every day and New Jersey and Philly are really close, but like it really took a toll on my body because I would have to add time to everything I was doing and assume that it would take me just like generally longer to get where I was going. And because everyone else in that area and then that job had cars and like had this kind of like suburban idea of mobility and how things worked. It's like, regardless of whatever accommodations were in place, I just felt like everything took a long time because I've had to, because my routine yeah. normally, because of how I rely the most on like one side of my body to do everything. It's like, you know, it slows everything down by like 50%. Yeah. I think, just my routine varies on like a daily basis in the pandemic because the pandemic has kind of eliminated a lot of the things that I did as a routine. In general, the way that I make my life easier is just by listening to my body. Yeah. And on, I mean, like, honestly, that's taken a long time to learn. Um, and it wasn't, ironically, it wasn't until I got into like talk therapy <laughs> that someone established that concept. Whereas like, like loving them to death, I really care about the people that were my physical therapists or occupational therapists or whatever. But it's like, 
I didn't really learn that it's like your body talks to you. It's not like you're forcing your body to do something else by screaming at it. And yeah. I feel like growing up, I had a really antagonistic view of like care because I was like, yes, this is supposed to help me, but it sucks. And it's like, this isn't what my body wants. And I'm not saying that like neglecting everything your body might be telling you by the warning signs that it gives off. I'm not saying like that is the strategy necessarily, but it's like, if you have limits, accept them. Don't push your own limits, you know, and growing up, I think this might be tangential, but growing up, I think the idea of like being the only disabled person in my community, like at school or whatever, created this narrative of like, okay, I have to triumph over everything. Yeah. And like what that did for me is like clashing with like also gifted kid syndrome, middle kid syndrome, like any sort of like suburban white nothing psychological complexes you wanted to throw on me right like i have this and so it was like okay now i have to be on this level of performance that is on par with like an able-bodied person and yeah. <laughs> for me at 26 where like the world has all but grinded to a halt and everything is kind of thrown into disarray daily you know plug in whatever you want to talk about there but like yeah i have limits and my routine kind of is shaped around what the limits are daily you know after someone explained to me that you can measure out your ability in spoons i was like that is very helpful something i think about and struggle with even in just like doing this project like i want you know showcase people like yourself like you're a very good writer you work with artists you do what by most one would consider very cool, fulfilling, creative things. That said, it's still a lot of work and you also have to balance it with this very unique challenge. What's your relationship with being inspirational? <laughs> That's a good question because I think it's, it's absolutely changed in my life. Whereas like in the beginning of my life, because I think... I was the only disabled person that most people had met at the time or mm -hmm. were like going to meet. And like, that's kind of a scary concept. But because of that, I embraced because at the same time, it was also very apparent that I was very gifted and very smart. And so kind of both of those spotlights shine at me at once. And I really, I craved it because I wasn't really good at things that elementary school aged kids were good at because I would have to go to physical therapy all the time. So it was sure. like, I couldn't really match you on, you know, your super smash melee uh, high scores, you know, but I could do multiplication really fast, but I could also like tell you a story and it was interesting. You know, like I really relished the idea of like, not only having the attention of being gifted and being smart, but also having these challenges and like being okay in spite of them. And like, as I got older and as I started really coming into my own about what it all meant, um, because growing up, I wasn't really told. And so in this early stage of my life, I didn't really question <laughs> like 
who these people were that were helping me all the time, the aides that would come and they would help me take a lunch tray through the cafeteria lunch line. And I would be able to take one person to come with me and have lunch. And it was like I was buying friends. And so when I changed schools in the fifth grade, I asked my physical therapist finally, what is the CP thing? What is my specific CP thing? How can I explain this to people? Because I just moved to a school. It was like a private school, basically, because my parents and bless my parents' hearts, who at every opportunity stopped what they were doing in life to help me. And like right. it altered the course of like everyone in my family's lives. And I I have a lot of like internalized guilt about it, but I also appreciate it so much. So like my parents pulled me out of that school, me and my brother, and we went to this school, which had like dramatically reduced class sizes. Everyone was super gifted. Everyone had a thing. Everyone just like had their own spotlight. But I wanted to be sure that when I introduced myself to these kids, I like knew what I was grappled with, you know? And I mean, I didn't really hit that um, inspiration mark in this new area until the end of eighth grade when, you know, teachers would be like, you're so smart and you have all these adversity points that you've kind of accumulated in life, you know, they would treat it like a game of like, who was the most kind of not oppressed. Oppressed isn't even the right word. It was like, they were treating adversity as a badge of honor at that school. Right. And I like, I don't know. I didn't really question it again. When you don't have a prism of like other people in your daily life, other than the other disabled folks you may meet at, adaptive sports or karate lessons you know like every day when the people that you want to be friends with and want desperately to like you just like do not have a frame of reference of anything you'll accept anything and it wasn't really until i took control of my own narrative and was like i have this you know these are what the challenges are this is what the music scene doesn't do for us you know it was just like very like i just started going to shows for the first time and i was like really adamant about accessibility and how it felt to be jostled you know at era of the mixed bill 2014 you would see a hardcore band open for you boy there was a time where i just felt like me being in a place where i felt for the first time accepted in a way where i didn't have to take what people were dishing it was just like taken in kind and very like that idea of community and acceptance you find punk and emo to be like idealized to be and everyone can say there is one for them and they you find your own and make your own community but at the time i was like the atmosphere of people who don't care about the physical well-being of other people like that sucks and so oh, yeah <laughs> unfortunately there was like a little bit of this wasn't even my doing, but it was like, because I was speaking out about this and I felt like for a while I was the only one doing it, at least in the scene where I operated, which was like pop punk, blood money, you know, knuckle puck, state champs, that kind of stuff. So like that kind of ecosystem allowed me to thrive and you can, and so I ended up writing for AP. And so I would write these articles that were like how to, make a safe space, how to 
accommodate disabled fans and disabled artists, you know? Like, really what I thought were, like, thoughtful commentary pieces, right? And I would always get this blowback. But then I was just kind of like, you know, I'm just going to say whatever I want. And you can hate it, and you can be concerned. Like, when Neck Deep, (laughs) the Ben Barlow vocalist guy, said the R word in response to people not liking... uh, his band Slipknot costume on one Halloween. <laughs> I was just like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, I yeah. don't care you're from the UK. Like, you don't have media training. Like, I don't know. There was a point where that upset me. And like, so AP at the time, which was a site that I was contracted to write for, they were just like, we're going to have Night Deep on the cover of its magazine. And you have Whoa. stuff running in it. And I was just like, I mean, I can't really control that. There was a point where like fighting for what I felt like the crusade that I started on, which was like acceptance of like disabled people, it became very personal and like weird. And so I, at the time my star was rising, like I got verified, like all this dumb college age stuff where I was like getting attention, but like also growing up at the same time, I was just like, who do I actually want to be? Like, do I want to be like a role model? Do I want to be a music journalist? Do I want to keep going with label management and band management and like work behind the curtain. Like it's very confusing when like no one advocates, no one is kind of the harsh word because we have other disabled folks like Cassie Wilson, who's doing half access and Sean Gray before her who ran, is this venue accessible? Like these people have been doing this disability justice in our little world for some time. And But it felt like no one was really holding the megaphone and talking about us, especially during COVID. And so all throughout my life, I'm just like, am I talking for me anymore? Or am I just talking for us? Do I want to be talking for us? So like my relationship with that question and my relationship with inspiration, just to tie it all together, is like people viewing you as inspiring usually is because you allow yourself to have these moments where people can see you being vulnerable. And, but for me, like that vulnerability comes at a cost of like, if I keep doing this, is it becoming like martyrish? Is it becoming navel gazing? Especially since a lot of my writing has been from the vantage point of like biographical essay or like inserting me into a lot of personal and also public venues like I wrote an essay uh, for MTV about this and it was like can I really be an advocate while also being just like so interested in chronicling my life in a way where people can read it the music scene connection is is super interesting to me because it's I think our dynamic here is pretty unique because I'm about 10 years older so I've been in that world, like going back to like the AOL instant messenger days, like that was like DIY for my time. It was like booking tours on there in my space. And obviously there's new different versions of that. But when I look back and I think about how punk music and hardcore music and, and the scene that we both have been a part of it at different points in time, it's supposed to be this really inclusive place that celebrates difference and oftentimes not only was it dramatically not that it was actually a very extremely dangerous place for women for people of color 
it almost feels like with with disability and accessibility and ableism and everything like that, society as a whole doesn't seem ready to have the conversation yet. They're just catching up to, you know, sexism. They're just catching up to racial issues. And it's generous to say, you know, catching up in quote marks. But it, it kind of feels like the music scene could proactively set an example. And do you feel like that's happening in any way? And also, what is there to be optimistic about when it comes to like the music scene and accessibility? And, you know, what have been like the most glaring challenges you've had in that world? So the thing that I'm really kind of excited about or just like continually sources of like the reason that I haven't left music, I feel like I get frustrated and I have moments where I'm just like a hater, you know, or whatever. And it's like anybody who does something for a long period of time and sees cycles repeat, you know, good or bad, like they have moments where they're just like, I don't know. But um, the reason I've stuck around for so long is like because of being loud and because of embracing the idea that it's okay to tell people that you have a disability and have these challenges and, you know, this is how you're expressing whatever feeling or complicated train of emotions you have around that. Um, And because of that, people have reached out to me. I've like forged friendships because of it. Like it's allowed me to also really just understand that if you make a genuine connection with someone and really share in that interchange of like, I want to be friends with you and I want to support you what in whatever endeavor you're doing. It doesn't even have to be music. It just could be a person that I found floating at a house show that happens to work at, you know, like a gelato place, right? It's like, yeah. But those are the people that are going to look out for you at shows. Those are the people that are going to be like, hey, do you have a seat? Like, yeah, those are people that when you see them are like, they're going to be plugged into your well-being and like really advocate for you. And that's what I think DIY does on a very like, it's not widespread. So I think like I've just been fortunate to have like really genuine relationships with the people around me and like also ask the same of the people that I care about. And so like, I don't feel like there's, you know, a a misuse of trust or like whatever. Um, (laughs) I think the issues that we face as far as accessibility, especially in Philadelphia are structural, um, literally because- Yeah, it's literally inaccessible. It's, It's wild. Yeah, so like Philly, obviously, if you go to like Old City where the Liberty Bell is or, you know, independent small or whatever, not. It's like um, basically cobblestone roads. Like horses mm-hmm. can travel down them, but cars have a really hard time. And it's like, I understand that you want to preserve the integrity of these areas, like whatever. The issue that I have is like, so there used to be this venue called the, uh, the Trocadero. And shout out the truck. Yeah. So rest in peace. I've been there a couple times. The thing that kept me coming back, kept me from coming back is that staircase um, is very steep. And the incline is just extremely just impassable if you have enough limitations. 
the issue too is like some of these buildings literally do not have elevators in them. Yeah. In the case of the truck, it was because a fire happened, right? And they had to remove it. Like some things are completely out of your control. The issue with that that I have is like, okay, like why wasn't that your first thought is like, how can we get this replaced? Like I just, that's an issue I had. Another thing that kind of comes to mind for me just like from an accessibility standpoint is so there's another venue that I frequent a fair bit, but like try to also limit my time going there because of the stair situation. And that's the first Unitarian church. And like, obviously it's church basement and there's no way around that. But like, ironically, the first time I had ever gone there, it was a benefit show for United Cerebral Palsy that my friends Eric and Emily put on. And it was at this venue and I was just like, these stairs are so interesting. And someone who like has a little more trouble getting down these stairs, it would be impossible. Right. And, you know, that carries over to basements and house show venues that only have, you know, the, the unfinished basements that only have one railing. So like the other side of the railing is, or the other side of the staircase is completely unguarded. And so for me, who has a condition that kind of reinforces the left side of my body, if the handrail is on the right side, I have to turn 90 degrees, walk down the staircase as if, you know, I'm like crab walking vertically, I guess. And the looks that I get um, from people who are not concerned are interesting and I can kind of see them in my peripheral vision because I'm turned, you know? So it's like, I know, I know it's kind of weird if you're going to these house shows slash house parties and you're like in college and you're like just waiting to get to the basement so you can slam a 40, whatever. But like, I say whatever a lot. I'm not indifferent to this, but the idea of kind of like scoffing at someone who's just trying to get down and enjoy what you're also about to enjoy. It's kind of weird, but that's kind of an issue of like not being around things like that or not really understanding how structural inequities affect other people besides you. And that's okay. But I think as a whole, I think there's just a lot of ways that the live concert experience has been difficult for people like me and me specifically i think like just the biggest thing is that when i started going to shows i was really into like revival pop punk so like man overboard story so far horrible misogyny music you know right and it's like i listen to it now and i'm like yeah i can really understand why i gravitated towards this energy but it's like i would go to the shows the story so far was my first like show show. I'd gone to Warp Tour the summer previously and got knocked over watching Yellow Card. And then I got knocked over during transit, had to go to a medical tent to get my knees bandaged up. And I was just like, you know, I was like, this is part of it, I guess. Like, you know, like this is like warped is basically like just one big pit. Like, don't get hit, whatever. Um, and I would I would interview Kevin Lyman a couple years later for AP about the accessibility initiatives that Warped had that I had no idea about because they don't advertise it. And it's like, dude, if this is such a central feature of your misogyny festival, why don't you fucking tell people? 
when they like register to go like okay look it's maybe my own ignorance that i i guess we're kind of vaulting away from the point i was getting towards but <laughs> the thing that i kind of find inaccessible about warp tour is like i went with my high school girlfriend to this festival if there was like some sort of organized way for people to go and not like go to where the times are and the big billboard and everything and just like get ready to go in but like have some more signage about it if you're disabled like what you would do right like a big blue handicap placard something because i'm not seeing that i'm seeing free hug shit i'm seeing yeah. You know, it's like very, if you make your disabled fans feel like the access is not there, they're not going to know and they're going to struggle. And, you know, I went to Warped and I, so I ended up going to this Story So Far show in Richmond at a venue that's no longer there called Kingdom. And it was like really scary. And I just like Kingdom, the thing about it is you would go up to the top floor and I would feel like the the integrity of that wasn't very great and it would like fall apart. I just like didn't feel very safe at that show, but that's probably just me and like first show jitters. So I'm at this show and story so far like barrels into this song 680 South. And so this kid like runs in from like off screen and I'm not seeing it. My glasses go flying across the way. And uh, I was also like knocked over and no one helped. And I'm just like, okay, I mean, I, I guess I'm in the way. I guess, like, I'm not supposed to be in this area. You know, and it wasn't until Joyce Manor, like, basically it was like stage diving is dumb. And, like, that discourse really ripped the internet apart. But I was like, you know what? Thank you. That's cool. Because, like, I think it is kind of dumb. It is cool to, like, see it from afar. But when you're in kind of, like, an unexpected area... And, like, yes, I know there's rules about, like, there's the pit. Don't go near it. But it's, like, if you're out of the pit and you still get hit by an errant stage diver, yeah. you're not liable for that. That's not your fault. So <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, we're in an age where I can't really complain about a specific recent example. And a lot of my later examples were just, you know, going to see... I don't know, modern baseball, right? And you would just, like, kids would just be flying. And it was just like, okay, like, I just got to move somewhere else. Yeah. I hope this venue has, like, a seated area. And usually it's, like, behind the sound guy. And it's like, I can't see that. Yeah, I just think, like, now, because we're in an age of no shows, live streams, like, I feel like live streams just, like, if you want to make accessibility a priority, live stream should be a thing forever. I don't know if you if you knew this, probably not, but like my first three years of like working in like music and like digital media and everything was for a live streaming startup called Stage It. It was like way too early. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, you know, we definitely put like the blood, sweat and tears into building that. And part of it, like it was very early on in me having like a general diagnosis of what was going on, what was making things like going to shows and like just being a, for lack of a better way to put it like a, a busy body person that liked doing a bunch of stuff and going a bunch of places. As I felt that being like potentially more challenging, it was kind of cool to be working on this model that 
could potentially fix the separation that, you know, people like yourself and me sometimes feel from live music, which is something we both enjoy very much. And I remember getting a customer service email from someone that actually said like, Hey, like, thank you so much for bringing, I I don't remember what artist it was. I think it was like an American Idol person or something Mm -hmm. on. And they're like, you know, I'm, Normally, I would get to go see them when they go out on the road, but you know, I'm I'm dealing with this disability that's gotten progressively worse. And I remember reading that and being like, "This is going to matter a lot to me in a few years," and it, it certainly has. And one of the you know silver linings, I guess, of the pandemic is that like that model, maybe not for the best reasons, you know, but it's it's here. I I hope it's here to stay. Like I'm literally, I think, you know, trying to pivot my career back in the position to make sure it's a success this time. Um, so yeah, to your point, I think like, like I watched the Jimmy world album shows they did and well, it's not the same as seeing it at a club. It was pretty damn good. I, I think just like, I, first of all, I watched the futures live stream and it made me cry. I was just like, so, good. Yeah. so cool. Like they're really, um, you know, it's a production for them cause they can take their live budget that they, you know, have unfortunately lost most of them. And put it into this high quality like thing you can watch more than once. I yeah. think like the cool thing about live streams for me is like I can't see very well because the other thing that happened when I had this hemorrhage was that it singed like half of my optic nerve. So like I wear glasses and they're very thick and I can't see without them and I lack depth perception. And so like in school, I always had to be in front of the class, but at shows, like sometimes being at the front is like danger zone. You know, yeah. I'm like, no one explained this to me when I was first going. So I'd be by the monitor and I'd get bonked. There, there's not a guide. There wasn't, at least. Maybe there is. But like, I think um, live streams like eliminate that entirely, but they also kind of replicate what I think is a rarity in a lot of these mid-sized venues which are tv monitors and they'll be at the bar they'll be like somewhere else in the venue like away from the stage and like yeah it does take away from like being able to just see it with the naked eye but it's like that helps me at least because then i'm just like i can you know enjoy it with a little more clarity um but i think live streams just in general they create a very accessible way to watch music. Um, Cause the other thing I think about is like, if you integrate that into your show, let's think of a practical example, right? Let's say, you know, I have tickets to go see Godspeed you black emperor. So I'm going to see Godspeed and it's going to be great, but I have like a pain flare up or like, I don't, I can't move like, right. Cause with CP, you're always fighting yourself. Again, another concept that wasn't articulated to me until I was maybe in 10th grade and I was sitting there and they were, I was in health class and my health teacher was like, you know, your body is like, like always creating two times the energy that you're putting into it because your body is like creating this push pull mechanism or wherever you push forward, there's like resistance pulling back because your body is just so constricted and tight and i was just like that makes a lot of sense i guess yeah so as i get older and as my body just like is more lived in and kind of like develops more problems it's like not always feasible for me to head out at 7 30 at night and wait 
you know, and stand for like 30 minutes until they do the sound check. And then it's another thing. Like, there's a lot of waiting in music that can be eliminated if you just keep the live stream option. Because I'm not saying that's an inconvenience. That's part of the experience. But if you're disabled and there's not enough seating, that's horrible. Yep. Um, so the live stream element is basically like you go and you buy a movie and you put it in for the first time and you can't skip to the menu. You can't skip the TriStar logo. You got to watch all the pre-roll commercials. But if you pirate the movie, you can just be there. Yeah. And it's like you're eliminating so many barriers if you have a live stream. And if there's a way to just like tack it on to a ticket price or make it cheaper than a ticket, you're also creating financial accessibility. I don't know how feasible that is. I can't account for a year of lost tour income if you're a band like Foxy, right? But I can say that if you were to just add this live stream thing into the future forever, you'd be opening up so many more people to be able to enjoy your art. And yeah. that's the ultimate recoup of the loss you had. If I had a budget, I'd try to work it in. <laughs> I 100% agree. And, and I appreciate that feedback coming from someone that has like some DIY cred because, you know, like I said, it, it's something I might very much bet the next however many years, if I'm lucky, of my career in, in music and digital media on once again. Uh, so it's good to get a cosign and it's good to get the perspective because I think it's it solves a problem, obviously, for people with mobility issues. And it also solves a problem for smaller artists where it's like, sure, like it's it's a good Band-Aid for Billie Eilish who can't go on tour during the pandemic to make up some of that money. But it's a way for a lot of artists that actually need to make money to do so. And that's pretty awesome. Kind of on that note, talk about moon physics this is something i came across recently i know it's yourself and i believe your co-founder has a chronic condition as well if i'm not mistaken you um, are not mistaken so I'd, I'd love to talk about this so moon physics is actually three people so it's me it's my friend colin who um colin so we met um like when i first moved to philly like we ended up watching the super bowl together and saw the eagles win like that was really cool, but then we became really close because Cullen, for a long time, has struggled with like the symptoms of like chronic Lyme disease and right. so, like everything that comes bundled with that. So like as we became friends, it was like I was also gaining a really good like sounding board for a lot of like chronic pain I was having and pain management ideas, but also like a person who was very aware of the idea of limitations and like listening to yourself and like the Zen of just like being your best friend basically, which is like a very corny way of just saying, you know, like when your body is telling you something, listen and act yeah. accordingly based on how you think you should. And so Colin and I were going to start another, um, venture similar to moon physics but it ended up not happening so when at the beginning of quarantine i reached out to a band called carly cosgrove about management services because i also do that through a company called rumble pack that i started and so i reached out to them they weren't really feeling management at the time but in kind of a counter offer, I was like, what if I just like filed an LLC overnight, you know, and like tried to be like, okay, but I'm going to found a record label and like we can do your record. 
Um, so I was playing Tony Hawk Pro Skater 3 just like in my boxers because that's Hell what yeah. you do when you the world is falling apart, you know, and you're like, I guess tomorrow I'm going to go to work, but I could stay up, you know, and try this uh, moon physics run. And moon physics is a cheat in Tony Hawk where you can jump really high. And when I was growing up playing Tony Hawk and developing a love for skateboarding that ultimately wouldn't like translate to a physical exploration of the hobby, but I was just playing Tony Hawk growing up and that cheat allows you to do a lot of the objective objectives faster. Right. Yeah. And Tony Hawk's not very easy. A lot of people forget that. Like the early games are basically just platformers and like Yeah. They're fun, but they're difficult. And so I really wanted to get further. And so I would use moon physics. But so, you know, obviously I don't need to recount a lot of the social injustices that various marginalized groups and endless people have, you know, faced in this horrible just era of mourning. You know, I had, you know, the opportunity to create a label when I was in college called Near Mint. And we did stuff and there was always a part of me that wanted to do like more charity stuff. Like um, around the time that Near Mint first started, like the Ferguson uprising and horrible like murder, you know, all of that, just like the way that the tide of the world just kind of shifted. And I was very like for the first time kind of exposed to the ugliness of the world because yeah. I had no filter anymore because I was just in school. And so... I talked to my business partner, Corey, and I was just like, what can we do? Like, what? Like, you know? And so, like, that always drove me. Near Mint was, like, ultimately, like, a business that kept giving the very small amounts of money it had to these things because I was just, like, especially when Trump got elected, I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. You know, like, what is happening? And, like, yes, the late stage awakening of a white person who has had a lot of privilege and allowed to flourish because of that like yeah cool i figured it out but it's like there was always a part of me that was like no matters as long as i'm ever gonna do music stuff like i would never feel good just doing music stuff and benefiting from it like i want to do something that is ultimately like a net positive and not like something that takes art and like twists it into something else right like a product or something that can't affect people positively and i'm not saying that music doesn't inherently do that because it does but it's like the industry and especially the way that it slants away from actually helping the artists that fuel it you know moon physics is like a small way to help you know it's like obviously supply chain is down and we don't have a ton of resources like we can't give you a radio campaign, but it's like the idea is um, you ever see that movie? Yes, man. I have. Yeah. So <laughs> Jim Carrey in that movie, because he has to say yes to everything. I'm just explaining for the listeners, but he he works at a bank and he's like a loan approver officer guy. So he approves all of these like stupid loans like for like a business that like has celebrity shaped cakes or whatever yeah. or like a ducati like motorbike or whatever and these micro loans ultimately like help the bank flourish because you know people are investing more money or whatever like making their payments i'm not really sure why but my idea moon physics is like okay we like a label we 
invest in artists, you know, pay for product up front, tapes, vinyl, whatever. Zines, we've done like a photo book called Screamo Money. It's very beautiful. Like, whatever you can think of. We've done pop sockets, wallets, you know, merch, fingerboards, we've done those, like things like that. So all the profit is split between the artist, so they get their 50% that they normally would, and the other 50 goes to a charity or organization or mutual aid fund or whatever of the artist's choice. And this is not a revolutionary model. This is like what DIY and punk like in certain areas is. Just the idea is I want to create a model where artists can be paid every week, even if it's like the two or three dollars that they make off the one tape that they sold in the past right. week, I want them to have it. Like, I know this is how the music industry works and I don't fault it because accounting sucks. And like, I don't like at certain levels, I don't know which way is up. Right. But it's like, <laughs> there's a difference between like having money in your pocket, the minute that the sale is there and it's cleared and like, six months later <laughs> i just yeah. like i don't know it's a simple thing and it ultimately like obviously it's not the most sound business model it gets complicated when we factor in you know we just got a distrokit account so we have to do streaming royalties and like bmi like how are we going to help people with publishing stuff like i don't know it gets bigger but the idea to me is that like i want to create a thing that is for the community and not just the music community, but like other people's communities. Right. And like the other thing that we do that was kind of <laughs> built out of just a chance encounter of labels online and desperation because vinyl isn't done. You know, like I was just like, I had this vinyl release planned and it wasn't finished. And like, quite frankly, we're almost having the records, but like it's been like a very long process. So, we didn't have the vinyl for this first release. So I was like, hey, what if I created a distro and I called it the Orbit because of Moon? And just like all these different labels, like-minded tape labels like Citrus City, which has great music, Disposable America, Plastic Miracles, you know, all these different labels. And the idea, especially Philly labels, we distro a lot of other cassette uh, friends. But the idea with that is that all the money that we... Uh, make after the cost of the tapes also goes to organizations while also like serving as a fulfillment and storefront for these labels. Because I think the other thing that I feel that music industry types or like archetypes kind of neglect is that idea of camaraderie, like actual camaraderie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, it is hard to discern what is real and what is true allyship in the music industry when you get to the certain tippy top. But I think at this level, especially DIY and the idea that like DIY is a concept, not a music genre, whoever started that stop, it's not a music genre. It's an ethos. And the DIY ethos to me is like, how can I help you? Like, how can I, I have this thing, I have this little project you also have this project. How can we like work together? Even if it's just me mailing out your shit, like how can I help? So yeah, it's a, it's a very like tiny endeavor. I mean, we started in August, um, but you know, I'm excited for the things we have planned. Um, you know, we have some new releases coming up, but we also have 
you know, different initiatives that we're going to try. I think like the other thing that I want to do with moon physics is like, so currently um, we have a guide that we send with um, orders, right? It's just like a two-sided piece of paper. And it was like, I made it, uh, I read the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And I kind of created, so I took notes and I like sat with it for a couple of days and I tried to create a roadmap for like fellow white people right. that are approaching this kind of with kid gloves at first. I would honestly, that's what it feels like. But I, the thing is, I wanted to create a guide that was like applicable to like basement shows and the idea that like, you know, put your money where your mouth is like be kind of aware of the dynamics at play that happen in music. And like, if you see them intervene, like, I don't know, I think like it was a good start, but I would like to, and like, we've talked about this just generally as a moon physics crew is like, what if we made like a zine that not only had these introductions to these concepts, but also resources for people of marginalized groups. I'm not really sure what this wound up being, but like, most people that, you know, order from us, like, they're not always the recipient of this information. And I want to make sure that everyone's taken care of. Because I love mail order. And I love doing that part and seeing people post pictures on Twitter and Instagram. And I love, I, I just love having a project to do with my friends that feels like we're doing something good in a year where nothing has been good um, or just like very little has been good. To your point, I think like, even if it isn't like the only show in town doing something similar to this, there needs to be more regardless. And I think you've done it in a very calculated in a good way uh, approach to it. So I guess wrapping up first off, where can people find you on the internet? And second off, what is the best Blink-182 album, and why is it the untitled album from 2003? Um, JamesCassar.com, if you want to see some writing that I've done. I have a newsletter called Weird Upstairs, but it's not... Like, it was on Substack, and we're not on Substack anymore. Just as a society, I guess. So I don't really right. know the reasons for that, but I'm not going to be publishing on there anymore. It'll be on JamesCassar.com at some point. And to answer your Blink-182 question, that, you know, I I love Blink-182. It's my favorite band. I tweet about Blink-182 all the time. I am blocked by Mark Hoppus, and it is the bane of my existence. <laughs> like, don't get me started. But Blink-182's untitled record, like most things in my early childhood or, like, elementary school days, came to me, like, later than the release date. So, like came out in 2003 this kid that i grew up with named chris like had it in his mom's minivan of course heard the first song i was like this is the coolest shit but i didn't i didn't know it was blink 22 and then i went home and i looked it up and i was like oh i have enema of the state like i have my sister's copy of it with the red cross like the first pressing cd and like for a long time i was just like allowed to listen to the singles I had no cuss words, but they were like gross anyway. Like dysentery, really? very. Oh, that has a cuss word, but like you know, like certain songs were off limits. So I like grew up listening to like Adam's song. I was like, this is deep as fuck. Um, 
Yeah, that could be counterproductive. I think it was because I brought in the lyrics to Adam's song to like a music appreciation class, and I got called into the principal's office, and they're like, "Are you okay?" And no, I wasn't. But back to the topic, Blink One Eighty Two's fifth album, Untitled. I feel like we'll never get back to this Blink. Obviously, you know they're just milking Spotify money, but it this record like shows me that like anybody who doubts you and thinks you kind of your shit sucks you can prove them wrong and sometimes it like takes a rupture and it takes like actually challenging what people think of you and unfortunately what people close to you think of you too to like create something really transformative and transcendent and yes i am defending blink 182 here but I mean, like, this record is genuinely, like, an artistic statement. Like, it's not, like, Take Off Your Pants and Jacket, which is interchangeable, like, sequence-wise to Enema of the State. It's, like, it's oh, own yeah. thing. So, I mean, like, I love <laughs> Untitled 2003. Yeah, it's a great-ass record. James, thanks so much for joining, and talk to you soon. Of course, yeah. It's, it's good that we could finally get together and do this. So thanks again to you for listening. Thanks again to James for joining. You can follow James on Twitter also at Get Cerebral. And you can subscribe. You can check out another episode of the Good Nature Podcast. And until next time, just stay good.